0: live from Cape Town
1: this is the voice of the cape the voice of the cape the voice of the cape. legal hour with Issan Higgins
2: warahmatullahi here. We got a very very special lineup this evening. Very exciting lineup. And as you all know, during this uh, period of lockdown and COVID-19, um, in the news, you know we've had programs pertaining to COVID-19 and lockdown for, since the start of lockdown and through the Ramadan as well. So, yeah, tonight it's no different. We're speaking to some guests, uh, very, very important and special guests uh, tonight uh, about, you know, the constitution, about the lockdown, about the COVID-19 and, you know, the Disaster Management Act. And um, tonight we have the lineup. It starts off with uh, none other than former ambassador Ibrahim Rasul. Uh, former Premier of the Western Cape as well and uh, he's going to be talking us through a whole lot of issues pertaining to the uh, pandemic issues. Assalamu alaikum uh, Ibrahim.
0: Wa assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Ihsan and to all the listeners of The Voice of the Cape it's yeah. nice to be on again.
2: Yeah I know it sounds it's quite strange hearing you on the, on, on the line as opposed to sitting here in studio um, yeah, uh, the only thing that's looking at me right now, quite weirdly, is um, two bottles of hand sanitizers, and mm-hmm. it says and it says the seventy-five percent alcohol on each bottle. So I've never thought that I'll ever see the day that I'll be sitting in Voice of the Cape Studio looking at alcohol. So. <laughs>
0: Look, I think um, it is better that that the alcohol goes into the sanitizers (laughs) than into the people of South Africa. I think we have have a wonderfully um, um, sober nation at this moment and we have absolutely clean hands. So even in the bad days, good. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, no, but as I say, it's just weird sitting in this empty room and only alcohol staring at me. But yeah. coming back to the program, uh, Ibrahim, shukran for for firstly agreeing to come on this late. I know it's late uh, and I know, you know, but Yusuf does, uh, the, he does us a great service by being on a you know, the, um, during the week between 9 and 11. So I've got one of the slots, uh, you know, that I've he's kindly offered, you know, to for me to deal with some no, of I'm these I'm issues. I'm So, yeah, uh, it's late, but we're going to talk some serious issues. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, and I I believe that that you just came off a conference now on Zoom uh, uh, commemorating um, uh, Malik al Shabazz, also known as Malcolm X. Let
3: me me
0: tell you about being late. Okay. (laughs) That conference starts at 7 p.m. U.S. time. Okay. It will be 1 a.m. South African time, so I'm still going to be up until probably 2, 3 in the morning for that commemoration. Okay. So it's still to come.
2: No, no, I it don't know. I, I thought it was South African time, but oh, okay. Makes no,
0: sense. No, 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 That's um, U.S. Eastern time. Okay, I and, th- um, so anyway, I suggest you, like, still, you, must,
2: like. you, must, you must stay up for Fajr. <laughs> one time. Inshallah,
0: inshallah.
2: Okay. <laughs> anyway, but I'm coming to the issue of the Disaster Management Act. And look, you've been a politician for a very long time. I think the public out there are very confused right now um, in terms of what. What exactly is happening now in terms of processes? We, do, we have a Disaster Management Act that was obviously promulgated by Parliament, and now you have a, a, a group uh, appointed by the President to be this command council, and they're making certain regulations in terms of this Disaster Act. This, uh, so the constitutionality of these regulations has been called into question by various parties. What is your take on it?
0: I think that um, that it is instructive that the president is utilizing the disaster management act because that is limited in time and limited in scope mm-hmm. meaning that it can go on forever and also that it doesn't affect everything. Had the president for example invoke the emergency regulations. Mm -hmm. Then South Africans are going to be asked to give up civil liberties. They're going to be asked to not only be in lockdown, but they're going to be in curfew whole day. Um, The police and the army become your instructors. You don't even have a committee making decisions. You simply have a security um, arrangement making decisions. So we've got to understand that we are not dealing with emergency regulations we are dealing with disaster management. Emergency regulations deal with issues like civil unrest, security issues, whereas disaster is related to natural disasters or health disasters, as in this case, and so um, we have that um, first distinction. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I think that the president has put together the National Command Center, and those are the few ministers, and as per the um, disaster management act that is coordinated by the minister of local government or in our case um cooperative governance um, and traditional affairs mm. and so all in all i think that um, that is correct
2: i think we've lost uh ibrahim there we're gonna t- try to get him back uh, ibrahim rasul um he will be back shortly. I see the technician is, is contacting him now. If it so uh, we'll get back. We'll get him back now, and uh, we'll continue our discussion pertaining to the constitutionality of the disaster regulate disaster management act and its regulations. And uh, I think um, is he back on the line? Hmm. Okay, Ibrahim, are you back? I'm, I'm, I'm. Anyway, that's good. Can you hear me
0: now?
2: I can hear you now, but uh, yeah, you were saying?
0: Yes, I was saying that um, we've got to first distinguish between the Disaster Management Act and the emergency regulations. Secondly, we have to understand that um, in terms of that, the President has established the National Command Council or the NCC, but... Um, We are sitting with a situation in which... In which? So, So basically what we have is a situation in which the president ensures that cabinet as a whole ratifies the decisions of the NCC before they are even implemented and therefore it is not delegating any authority... To any other body other than cabinet, so that I think is the is the second very important um, okay. very important. Um, consideration that we must bear in mind. Okay,
2: let me just and get it. Yeah, let me just uh, just uh, get it straight. Um, so I think the confusion was, uh, if one read the media and all the hype, was that there was simply the the, the command council that made decisions that was implemented. What you're saying now is, they make a recommendation to cabinet. Is that what you're saying? They
0: make decisions, yeah. and then before it can be implemented. It is taken to cabinet and you will remember the last speech that the president made. He said, I want to go to level three um, by the end of um, May. But cabinet will now be seized with all the discussions that will go into that decision. That is the way in which you ratify the decision of a committee that sits with the crucial ministers leading their clusters. Mm. Thirdly, the third issue that I think one must understand is that even as these things go on, Parliament, for example, has called in the relevant committees um, and the relevant officials dealing with various aspects of COVID-19. So they, for, for example, there were complaints that the security forces were being too harsh. Parliament would then call in the heads of departments, of the police, as well as the army, to interrogate them about those kind of matters. So in that way, Parliament plays an oversight role while before they were giving birth to the Disaster Management Act by empowering the president to utilize that kind of act. So I think... It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a more complex way in which our democracy is working but it is working and I think it is at the hand of this that quite a few bodies have withdrawn their threats of challenging constitutionality of the Disaster Management Act and oh. the NCC
2: Okay, I think, so, so just, just repeat the part where you say that what is the current role of parliament because it almost seems that if you know if one watches the media that parliament is absolutely silent so can you just repeat the the, the role that parliament is playing right now
0: so parliament plays an oversight role so when for example there were complaints that the police and the soldiers were being too harsh were doing bad things to people Parliament was able to call in the directors general, the heads of the army, etc. And that's what they do over Zoom um, conferences to be able to hold them to account and to give direction on how they should be doing. So you don't have Parliament as a whole sitting in Cape Town. Mm -hmm. It is actually the committees that deal with The COVID 19 that is then held accountable by the parliamentary portfolio committees that deal with some of those matters.
2: Yeah, I think it's important that the public understand that democracy is still working you know that it that i mean there's been so many uh silly um, extracts of news where people almost gave the impression you know that uh, democracy is no longer happening in south africa i mean it's now been taken over by a, a small elite group of, uh, of politicians but the way you put it out now you know it 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 it, it kind of you know fits together nicely you yes. see that is why you go
0: back to the beginning. That if this were based on the emergency regulations, democracy is effectively suspended, mm-hmm. and we experienced that in 1985, 1986, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, where there's no democracy and P. W. Botha rules with an iron fist. This is not like that. Mm. It's, you can't be locked up without a trial. Even those who violate um, the compliance of the lockdown. Are subjected to to, to, to to court procedures I, under state of emergency, had no court procedures, I was simply locked away for more than a year. Mm. so I think we need to understand that this is not a subversion of democracy or civil liberties, but it
2: is acting
0: in an urgent way to deal with a disaster.
2: Okay so so I think that that's kind of clear in terms of you know how this thing plays itself out and I think um, people are of course very angry about certain things and th- and the ends obviously all the accusations come come out like for instance the the ban on cigarettes the 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 stifling of uh, of of movement the you know the the rest- yeah, all the type of restraints that has been put in place um is there any light for those people, excuse the pun, <laughs> like with the cigarettes? <laughs> the, um,
3: I,
0: I think, I think where we, we must question and we can question is the rationality of the regulations. We must not question whether the intention is right to save lives, whether the Disaster Management Act is constitutional and all of those kind of things. What we can debate is the rationality of the regulations. So Mm. for example, um, the goods that can be sold. All of us have different opinions about whether it's rational or not. And I think what was very important, everyone was looking in the last address by the president to the nation. Everyone was looking at an announcement from him. The most important part of what the president did that night was effectively to apologize to the nation for incoherence in government about one minister speaking like this and another one speaking like that, about regulations not always being rational and sensible, and they undertook that we will get it right. And that is why he expressed his intention to go to level 3 at the end of May, and therefore effectively put the whole of government on notice, you've got two weeks to get this thing right, to make sure that we don't contradict each other, to make sure that we speak with one voice, to make sure that what we say is going to be irrational and it's not going to be the whim of a minister or a premier or an MEC or a mayor, that we are going to speak with one voice and we are going to have rational reasons. So I think that... That is a debate. And so cigarettes, for example, is definitely a debate because we can't solve all our issues with one coronavirus lockdown um, mm. disaster. act. Um, I think um, we, we would need to, at some point, to just open the valve so that you don't confuse what people are angry with. Sometimes they withdraw symptoms from being off cigarettes can make you angry at the whole government. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to compound a health disaster with a social uprising, with dissent in the ranks, mm-hmm. with civil disobedience. And so government has to clearly balance out a variety of factors. And and we must understand, this is like flying an aeroplane. Every button you touch affects another function in the in the aeroplane. So if you say, let's lift the lid on cigarettes cigarettes for example is about the health of your respiratory system if that is weak you become an even bigger recipient of potential risk for coronavirus and so you've got to understand you can't just push a button you've got to weigh up okay if we open up schools it's okay for the kids but what about the teachers you have got to balance out there. If you open up alcohol, for example, the reports across the country is that trauma and emergency units have never been so empty Mm. on a Friday night, a Saturday. And it's purely related to the fact that alcohol is not being um, utilized. And so if you fill up trauma and emergency because you open up alcohol, what happens? If the wave hits us with COVID and the hospitals are filled with people with stab wounds, with gunshot wounds, wives who have been um, brutalized by their husbands because of alcohol. So you've got to look at all of those kind of differences. I think the same thing, it's not to make opposites of the economy and health, but to harmonize the competing interests of both.
2: And also, Ibrahim, the issue of uh, the, the black market having opened for cigarettes, I mean, you see people, some people are even openly advertising 170 rand a packet of, of cigarettes, which would have cost under normal circumstances about 25 rand. So the black market and the policing of that, I mean, surely. Uh, well, what is your take on that?
0: No, that's exactly the thing. If you make a regulation, you must have the mechanism to enforce it. And the mechanism, for example, the president made the announcement about 350 rand for unemployed people, but the mechanisms weren't put in place. The intention was good, the regulation was excellent, um, but the ability to dispense the money wasn't thought through. In much the same way, on cigarettes, if you're going to make that, don't have unintended consequences. And so I think these are all the things that's going into the Washua government. Um, so that when we come to a level three situation we may find a way in which to to deal with a situation where the unintended consequences of a burgeoning black market a loss of tax revenue for government um addicts for cigarettes going crazy um all of those things would need to be carefully um calibrated so i think when the president says we are going to do things better it means we are going to look at this aeroplane's dashboard and work a lot more carefully with all the different buttons that are there. We can't just push a button otherwise the aeroplane nosedives or we slurge to the left or to the right. So I think these are the the, 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 the complex art of managing
2: a disaster like this. And then Ibrahim, this is a big issue which I'm going to, obviously we're going to speak about a little bit later with, with Ashraf Mohammed after, after I've spoken to you. But maybe you can just comment on it. There's currently, you know, on the cards, a, a by-law laws that will be implemented or um, enacted very soon by the city of Cape Town. Now, isn't it a, p- a poor time put timing on the part of a of of, of a of a of, of a local government to to actually open up a process that could potentially criminalize poverty can you are you familiar with this with this bylaw that is being yes. being uh, looked so, at
0: no, i've i've heard about it it sounds like an omnibus bylaw that kills many birds with one stone and it's disingenuous, for example to try and 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 smuggle in a whole lot of um different um factors in a situation in which people are traumatized because they're losing their jobs they're having to stay at home uh, muslims can't go to tarawih christians couldn't do easter um, Pesach wasn't a thing for jews and so when people are are assailed with a whole lot of different um traumas you don't and I know in politics, there's an adage that says, never let a good crisis go to waste. And mm-hmm. it seems as if the city of Cape Town is saying, this is a crisis, let's pounce on it and let's push through a whole lot of things that we want to do. The city of Cape Town and the Western Cape needs to understand, you can't solve in a crisis what you have not been able to sort out in 20 years. Mm. Um and therefore for example we can't moan about kailicha not observing social distance when we've not spent all the housing budget to provide more um, housing for people to overcome the overcrowding in places like ravensmead mannenberg kailicha etc because social distance is a relative concept, and in much the same way the kind of getting street people off the poverty stopping noise pollution if it includes and then we mustn't also um fall for the trick in which they satisfy us. They say, no don't worry, your advance will be okay. And then we lose sight of the other infringements yes. on people's right to be on the streets, to to to, to, to um and, and to seek out a livelihood amidst their poverty. So I think this is this is this is not very good, but Ashraf Mohammed I think we'll be able to speak much more to the listeners. Yeah, well, but I think we mustn't be divided in this. We must see
2: it as a whole. No, no, definitely, and I, th- and I also think it's a bit short-sighted to, to actually side with a portion of of the harm that uh, that this this piece of legislation could potentially, uh, you know, cause. In the communities, but anyway, that that's for the debate after this, uh, after my my discussion with you. Then, of course, the issue of travel. I mean, you are probably one of the most well-travelled people in the world. So, tell us a little bit about what happens to the future of travel.
0: Look, I think that travel is going to be one of those very difficult situations. Airlines are going under at an alarming rate. Um, There are still countries that allow this kind of travel. The U.S., um, for example, aeroplanes are still flying there. Um, It's limited in other places. It's absent in other places. And it's no wonder that um, you are having those countries that are allowing it having the highest rates of, um, of infections and of deaths. Because, you see, the nature of the aeroplane is such It circulates the breath and the air and the droplets of the people in the aeroplane. It doesn't go out.
3: Mm.
0: It doesn't take air from outside in. It's a closed circuit. And that's what makes traveling a dangerous uh, matter. It's no wonder that even ships, cruise ships, were hit the hardest um, so it's it's in those kind of areas where um, of travel that things are very, very tough. Yes. And so we know that there are industries wanting to survive the hospitality industries. But I also think that we are beginning to learn the limits of travel at this moment. And that's why Zoom is taking off. We're now beginning to understand that you could do a Malcolm X commemoration address from Cape Town when... Um, the African-American communities across the U.S. can listen to you. Um, you don't have to necessarily fly there. I think people are adjusting for travel, but they are hard-hit in the industries.
2: Yeah, but now of course uh, you can't do a Zoom Hajj. So, <laughs> so why, what in the future of Hajj? Obviously, there's no, there's not going to be. I mean, I don't know if there's been any announcement at this point in time. But if there's of course going to be a ban on, on on flying, then of course people will not be able to get to the to the Middle East. So, so what is your take on that?
0: Well, look. I think that there have been occasions, rare occasions, but there have been occasions in which, for public safety, public health, um, Hajj was suspended. We're not speaking about an indefinite suspension. There are things that you must do in person. Hajj and Umrah would be one of those kind of matters. And I'm sure that um, the Saudis, between the revenue accruing from Hajj, the obligations that pilgrims have towards their creator as well as the safety of people. You know, in some senses, life is a maqsid, an intent that trumps other um, obligations um, and therefore I think in much the same way that we are preserving life by forfeiting um, Salah in Jamaah in the masjid, I think The same kind of flexibility would occur um, with regard to the Hajj on the basis that the sooner we beat this virus, the sooner we can return to a kind of way in which Hajj becomes again um, the order of the day.
2: Yeah, I think uh, people have, you know, when when we started out with lockdown, people were focused on, on, on wanting to do what they did before, but now... That it hasn't happened for a while, and of course there has been a few unsuccessful um, court challenges to some of these uh, lockdown regulations, especially the one, the, 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 um, the, the going to mosque one. Um, I think people are now embracing what they can do instead of going to mosque, you know, in terms of if you look at all the, 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 the Eid issues, like our people will be having an Eid program despite not being able to go to mosque. So is this part of the, let's call it the um, the acceptance part, you know, that we're in this pandemic and, uh, you know, people need to make the most of it?
0: You see, I think what we are beginning to find is how do you salvage the intent, the moxie, the principle, the values? How do we salvage that even if we compromise on the form, what we do? How do we become spiritual if we don't follow every ritual? That we are used to, and I'm telling you, just from speaking to people, this has been a very meaningful Ramadan. family yet Imam, because where we were followers before was it travi, Imam Imam yeah. Now we are the Imams, and suddenly we Suddenly, you've got to find the meaning, Jebdi Darsnak, for your family. And I'm amazed how in the intimacy of some of our rituals now under COVID-19, we have found a deep spirituality and a deep meaningfulness. And maybe we may not go on Hajj, but if Hajj is Arafah, and Arafah means to know, and the condition of knowing Allah is to know yourself. I suspect that we have all been the cave of Hira. Not in the same way that the Prophet Sallallahu was in the cave of Hira. But metaphorically we were in the cave of Hira where we sat with the Qur'an. where we allowed the Qur'an to speak to us, to our needs, to our desires, to our worries, to our traumas. And to allow the, the conversation with Allah subhanahu wa Taala to be one that is shaped by us and not necessarily shaped by the one who gives the lecture afterwards, who gives the interpretation afterwards. And I think we are finding a situation in which people are finding new meanings. It doesn't mean that we will give up on the rituals again, like we did before in the traditions. But the moment we get back to it, we would have reached new depths of meaning and spirituality that could only enhance us. And we will look back on the spirit and say, really, I was in my own cave of Hira, and I was moved by my spirituality and my connectedness to Allah. And maybe this is what Allah does. Allah interrupts us. Allah says, you've been doing this for so many years in this way the other, I've not seen you grow. Maybe I'll disrupt you so that you come to know yourself, then you will come to know me, and that is the very purpose of what these ibadah are about. So we've always been very good at our vertical worship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I think now we've just combined it all. We are such good-hearted charitable people that the Muslim community is now known across the globe as a giving one. People who make sacrifices, who zakah is making an impact, who will make an impact, who will make an impact, who has made an impact. And I believe that that is a benefit that we will all look out for. And inshallah, I'm hoping that the Salt River Initiative that was announced Wa'id, will make us so together in our apartness that if we can pull off a unified, synchronized takbir on Eid morning and the whole of Cape Town observes this and they hear this, um, takbir over the loudspeakers, people stepping out, as suggested by the Sultan, the people onto their stoops and doing the takbir. If voice of the tape comes to this party, I believe we will look back and, and say, and the other radio station, possible,
2: and, and the other radio station as well, <laughs> and whoever. I think we just need everyone. This can be an aid of healing,
0: of reconciliation, and of unity. Those who have not spoken um, organizations that have been suspicious of each other can reconcile in a common suffering. Um, those who have the issues with, with COVID, it could be a prayer for, for healing for our home nation, not just for ourselves. And so I think we will find benefits because Allah SWT says to us, sometimes something appears bad to you, but there's good in it. And sometimes the good that we used to do, that there may be a being bad in it, that we became complacent. We became neglectful. We became neglectful of searching for deeper meanings. We did out of habit rather than out of intent.
2: Mm. No, brilliant. I think um we need that type of uh, positive voices. Uh, shukran very much for that uh, uh that um in- input in terms of you know the challenges that we face at the moment. So Ibrahim, shukran very much for coming on air this time of the evening also. And uh, we hope to hear your voice very soon, inshallah. 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 What's
0: Thank you very much, Ekran, for this opportunity and to the listeners. Um and May everyone have a wonderful aid, inshallah, and, uh, and 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 may Laylatul Qadr really empower us um, when it hits us at the right time, inshallah.
2: <inaudible> Assalamu alaikum.
0: Wa <inaudible> alaikumussalam <inaudible> wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.
2: Live from Cape Town,
1: this is The Voice of the Cape. The Voice of the Cape. The Voice of the Cape. Eagle Hour with Issan Higgins.
2: And we are back with the legal hour, and we just spoke to uh, former ambassador of the USA, Ibrahim Rasul, and uh, yeah, he gave us a bit of positive uh, affirmation in terms of where we're at at this point in in South Africa. So the next uh, next person that we're interviewing tonight is uh, none other than Attorney Ashraf Mohamed. Assalamualaikum, <laughs> Ashraf.
4: Well, alaykum and assalamualaikum, salaam
2: alaikum, and alaykum to all the listeners. And thank you for having me um, on your on your
4: show. Always a pleasure,
2: Ashraf. Ramadan rahmatullahi to you and to all the listeners as well. Shukran for that, Ashraf. You've been a very busy man, very busy lawyer over this <laughs> uh, this lockdown period. And I've been following some of the work that you've been doing. Yes. And um, I think it's excellent. You know that some people have uh, you know decided to make the most. Of, uh, of the lockdown, in terms of the activism, in terms of what they do for society, and um, yeah, you've done quite a bit. so let's talk about s- some of it, and um, most importantly, what you've. Uh, we're going to talk tonight about this this act or rather this act of uh, um, I don 't even know what to call it, but uh, let let's just be nice and say, <laughs> let's call it a bylaw. Yeah. by the city during this period of crisis. There's a bylaw pending. In fact, I just spoke to Ibrahim about it just before this. But um, yeah, I think you are obviously in the best position to give us a a comprehensive explanation of the, what this bylaw is about but maybe before you even talk about what the bylaw is about you know that one that's upsetting people so much at this point in time maybe just give a definition of a bylaw oh,
4: the simplest definition uh, Hassan, is that a bylaw is a regulation or a rule which is made by a local government a local authority like a municipality uh, but you can also have bylaws made by corporations and companies and so forth. But this, this particular bylaw which we're talking about today is a, is a draft amendment to the bylaw that was approved by the city of Cape Town on the 30th of May 2007. So it's just, it's just a definition, a set of rules and regulations, in this case specifically relating to streets, public places, and the prevention of noise nuisances.
2: Yeah, but now, if if this bylaw was passed in 2007, why is it that they're wanting to, let's call it even assault the public now? Because, I mean, just from what I've seen, in terms of the, the, the objections from various organizations. Um, I'm sitting here with a, with a document here from Ground Up um, as, as an NGO. There's Cape Civics Associations, there's Observatory Civic Association. I mean, I'm sitting here with all these um, um, documents, you know, from various organizations uh, fighting this thing. So yeah. now the question is, why is it that During this period, this period of, let's say, swakare, you know, people are not working, people, some people aren't even getting salaries. So, and people don't have time for this type of, you know, side issues. But this side issue can become a major issue. So, maybe just give us an overview of what this bylaw seeks to do.
4: Well, I mean, I think it's suspicious that we are considering this bylaw, which essentially tries to criminalise poor people, and, and to criminalise, especially the homeless people, people who sleep on the streets and so on, and that we're having this discussion during the month of Ramadan when we um, mm-hmm. reflect on uh, the needs of the poor, the marginalised, and the indigent, and because ultimately our sacrifices in fasting uh, are about empathising with the poor and with the marginalised, And I think it's appropriate during this particular month of Ramadan for us to actually focus on uh, the, the substance and content of a bylaw that seeks to criminalize poor people. So what the bylaw of 2007 actually does is it speaks about the management of streets, um, public places and noise nuisances and other related matters on all properties in Cape Town. Now, we're talking about public places, we're talking about streets. Noise nuisances often... Um, it relates to uh, examples when people, when when our masjid Masajid make Adhan, um there have been numerous complaints and, and we'll recall the more recent complaint that was lodged against uh, the uh, Muir Street Mosque.
3: Mm-hmm. Masjid, um,
4: in, uh, in the Islam Masjid, in the book-up, that was, I think, last year, uh, they were subjected to... Uh, a complaint about the making of the adhan. It was around May or June 2019 when a complaint was filed against the Meal Street Masjid. Um, unfortunately, this bylaw doesn't exclude um, um, the ringing of church bells, the making of adhan, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So noises are pretty much included in uh, as, as potentially as nuisances um, and, and regulated under this particular bylaw of 2007. Now, what we're talking about today is a proposed amendment to that bylaw that was passed in 2007. And what this proposed amendment does is it aims to, uh, well, well, they claim that it it, it 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 tries to streamline procedural aspects of the bylaw of 2007 that support and enable law enforcement officials to resolve complaints relating to noise and reducing risks. Uh, to the city of Cape Town and individuals and landowners by ensuring that the processes and their actions are supported by legislation. Mm. So, in essence, this draft amendment deals with enforcement and the recovery of costs. So, say, for example, there's been building work or somebody's left a rubble on the side of the road and the city of Cape Town comes along and they remove the rubble. They can then not only issue a fine against the person who put the rubble there Perhaps your neighbor. Put it there on the side of the walk, and it, it overlaps on your property. They can also come and, uh, you know, impose a fine, but also recover costs for removing that rubble, and then ask you to pay for the recovery of the cost. If people are sleeping on the streets and they um, their, their goods have to be moved uh, somewhere else, poor people, homeless people who have nothing to begin with, um, can be fined for sleeping on the street. But in addition to that, for the removal of their goods. They can also. Uh, the City of Cape Town would want to recover costs under this particular draft amendment of the bylaw, but it goes further than that. Mm-hmm. It's, it gives law enforcement officials extensive powers of inspections, instructions to you know give them their power to just instruct people to leave places and so forth. Uh, there's an issue about compliance notices, and and the, it speaks about authorising officials, but it doesn't define who the authorising official is or where they get the authority from and so on. But it just allows them to have extensive powers that are way above and ab- beyond what even the South African police service have. Can you believe this?
2: Now, I should have just before we go more into the, the substantive issues, let's just go back to the procedural issue quickly. Now. Yeah. The Constitution of this country gives obviously that's the the, the the mother document. You know, all laws derive from there. Of course, it 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 gets tested. You know whether it's compliant with uh, with natural law, with all types of uh, you know laws, and then of course all legislation gets made by Parliament. There's a whole lot of processes involved. There's public participation. There's white papers. There's green papers. There's all these things. Now. What's the point of having a constitution that guarantees certain rights, and along comes a municipality, a local government, and then simply makes a bylaw that overrides what what, what, constitution, what, what, what the constitution basically guarantees? For instance, freedom of movement. I mean, you say that uh, some official can just tell you to move along. So, I mean, more than
4: that they, that official can actually arrest you, uh, if, uh, But your, your point is quite a valid point because there are a number of uh, constitutional rights in the Bill of Rights that are at stake here. You've mentioned freedom of movement being one of them. There's the freedom of security and freedom of person, the right not to be deprived of freedom arbitrarily because people can just be arrested. if um, You can have your cell phone snatched away by a law enforcement official and impounded under this particular amendment to the bylaw. Um, because a law enforcement official simply deems, who has a wide discretion, uh, sees it as, as some kind of um, asset to an act of, 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 of um, unlawfulness or breach of the bylaw. So there are a number of constitutional issues. But the point I think that you want, uh, you're want getting at, Exxon, is that a bylaw does not trump the Constitution. The Constitution is the supreme law of the land. The rights and the freedoms that people enjoy ultimately trump all the other uh, powers and functions that police officials even have under the uh, under the law. Mm. And so this by cannot come along and try to do what, um, uh, you, you know, try to take away the rights that in the Constitution or in the, for example, the Criminal Procedure Act by yeah. giving law enforcement officials extra powers of search and seizure, uh, impounding property, um, instructing people to just move, et etc. et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, the constitution
2: remains the supreme law. Okay, Ashraf, if, if, if you don't mind, we're just going to break now for news okay. and Now, If it's possible, then the technician can call you back, rather, for, for the last uh, segment of, of, of this interview. Okay. Shukran. Yes, Shukran, uh, Ashraf. We'll speak to you. Shuk- My radio station. Your radio station. Our radio station. The
1: voice of the Cape. The Legal Hour with Irsan Higgins.
2: And we are back with the um, Legal Hour, and uh, I just want to check if Ashraf is back on the line. So, welcome, Ashraf, you back with us.
4: yes, thank you very much, I'm back.
2: Uh. Okay, shukran for, for coming back online, a lot. And um, yeah, <laughs> let's, let's continue with this bylaw discussion, uh, the bylaw that uh, conflicts a number of issues um, and is extremely broad. And, uh, of course, it's going to be prejudicing a whole lot of people should the city succeed in passing it as law. So, go you continue, Ashraf?
4: Yes, so, so, I mean, I think just to pick up on the thread um, that you raised earlier on the constitutional rights and so on. And I, I basically, in my submission on behalf of the National Association of Democratic Lawyers, uh, focused on five particular rights that I thought was, was was in breach, but of course there are a whole range of other rights that are also uh, in jeopardy. Here. Um, the one being uh, security and freedom of person, which is in section 12 of the Constitution, um, the right not to be deprived of freedom arbitrarily. When people can just be arrested, uh, you know, arbitrarily and so on. And in the city of Cape Town, under that particular, um, you know, with that dispensation, they can simply impose a punishment. Um, And they can determine the manner that the punishment is enforced. So law enforcement officials have got a wide discretion to be able to decide what uh, to impose punishments and and how that punishment must be enforced. But I think the the real concerning thing is that they can impose fines and that the imposition of a fine um, is a form of punishment rather than serving a regulatory purpose. You know, with bylaws... Filers must regulate the uh, mm-hmm. uh, conduct of people. But what this particular uh, amendment does is it actually allows them to impose uh, a fine, which is a form of punishment. So it goes way beyond what the, the regulatory scope actually allows for in, in, in the normal course. And that's quite problematic, it okay. Um And so so if there's a duty on the city of Cape Town to manage spaces, and, and, and for example, if there's trees overhanging people's yards and people are putting um, their washing on the line, on, on the on the boundary fence for example with the main road or whatever then law enforcement officials can come along and simply impound the clothes that are hanging on the washing on on the on the fence um you know people live in close proximity especially in in, in on the cape flats and and they use the, the, the space that they have to the maximum so you'll find that the, the lady may do the washing today and she may just hang her washing on the on the on the boundary fence under those circumstances, the city of Cape Town officials can just come there and grab that, impound that, uh, all those clothes, uh, and then she will have no leg to stand on. But then they will impose a fine on her and install the inconvenience of, um, of, 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 of charging her the cost of having to remove all the stuff. I'm just giving you some examples of how um, people can, can, can suffer the consequences. But I think one of the big things that we focused on in the submission as well was on, our, on homeless people. Mm-hmm. because what this particular draft amendment does is it characterizes homeless people as a threat to public safety. Um, and clearly, in so doing, the city of Cape Town fails to address their need for safety by imposing punishment. They're not improving the safety of people, whether you're economically privileged or whether you're poor or poor. How does imposing a punishment actually improve um, uh, the issue of safety? You know, so, so uh, the, the big concern, you know, from the perspective um, of the submission I've made was how does it impact on, on poor people, particularly on the cake flats? Um, and, and there are a number of uh, concerns that we have. We take, for example, one of the stereotypes. Um, um, uh, they, they stereotype people who are, who are released on parole, right? And they, stereo, they stereotype immigrants. And they basically say, and I mean, this is this is um, a statement that was released. Um, I'm just trying to find a statement now that was released by J.P. Smith and a guy called Zaid Badruddin. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they actually released a, a statement saying it's okay to issue fines. Um, and they stereotype people who are released on parole, who may find themselves in the street with no, uh, nowhere to go and sleep, even immigrants and so forth that may, may, be, may be left homeless and without any shelter. The problem with stereotyping is that they, you know, people who are forced to seek sleep on the streets, if they stereotype, they not they don't have a choice to sleep on the streets. People don't simply decide today I'm going to sleep on the street. It's not a decision also that, uh, sleeping on a street can cause harm to other people. Um, um it's what people do to survive, you know. And for for that kind of thing to be criminalized it's quite problematic in some. Um, uh, yeah. You, okay.
2: No, no, no definitely I should have I think um the the, the basically what this what, what it looks like and I'm che- and I'm checking with you is is this not just sorting out the the symptoms of the real problem and the real problem is poverty and homelessness and of the, course the,
4: real sim- the, the exactly the, the real the, the real problem is housing is the housing shortage yeah and 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 i think your point is that there's something that sinister that underlies this particular draft amendment to the bylaw especially when you consider the timing of it and i think you raised it right at the beginning why now mm. when the main when the parent bylaw was passed in 2007 why during the period of uh, COVID-19 lockdown um, do they then introduce this bylaw and they open it up for public comment between the 17th of April in the midst of a lockdown. in mm. the
2: 17th of May. And not just any lockdown, a hard lockdown. A hard know? lockdown. We, exactly. Yeah. So, so look, uh, I mean, Ashura, I just want to uh, read quickly the, the, the disclaimer here that the views expressed in this program is not the views of the voice of the is management or staff. I'm required by law to do that, so I'm doing it. Um, but now I want you to tell me about there's been certain organizations you know, that actually focused on very narrow issues pertaining to this bylaw. And it almost then gives the impression if there's agreement by the city on narrow issues that they are okay with a broader issue.
4: Yes. No, no. I, I think you're probably referring to the controversy that uh, erupted over the last couple of days um, involving the Muslim Judicial Council. Yes. And uh, which involved a meeting between the MJC and the city of Cape Town on the 30th of April. So, if an, uh, that particular issue, that controversy was, was, was basically underscored by the fact that this, the MJC, when they saw the draft amended by law, they were obviously concerned. And they sent in a question to the city of Cape Town seeking clarity um, in relation to this concern because, uh, obviously, um, this concern affects the number of the masajid in, in, in the city of Cape Town. And the question they posed to the city was, will the amendments to the current bylaw, law which in particular section 22 of the bylaw, affect the adhan or the call to prayer rendered from our masajid five times a day? What the city of Cape Town then did, they deployed two councillors. The one person is the chairperson of the safety and security portfolio committee, a councillor in and and councillor Aslam Kasim. I don't know these individuals, son. I don't hold a brief for them. But they apparently met with the MJC on the 30th of April. Um, and obviously it was called a bear instance. Um, and, and it was basically in response to the question that the MJC had posed to them around how this particular um, draft amendment would affect the adhan rendered from the masjid five times a day. And then I- what happened was they clarified that that it doesn't affect the bylaw. They gave certain verbal undertakings that in terms of the interpretation, it doesn't affect the other. and then they agreed to issue a joint statement. But the joint statement, if you read the tone of the joint statement, which was issued on the 14th of May of May 2020, uh, it almost appears from that joint uh, that that statement that there was support for the bill in general, but even though the MJC only raised a narrow issue in relation to the Advan. And I think that was quite uh, disturbing and perhaps problematic because it suggested that the MJC, which is a representative body of all Muslims in the Western Cape, and all the Masajid, uh, is now speaking on behalf of um, all the Muslims. um, Yeah,
2: I think, uh, I I think that's maybe where where the Muslim Judicial Council must be engaged once again because um, I, I think the, the, the it probably needed legal intervention and not necessarily only uh, um, uh, men of the cloth uh, or like the ulama, because when people say no, it's not it will not affect the the adhan five times a day. It could it, it could be true, but. They will then also focus on how loud it is, the acoustics of that particular adhan. I mean, it's, a, it's 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 a it's a historical, it's a cultural, it's an it's a religious issue that people have their adhan. I mean, if it's in Woodstock, we can hear it in Womay Estate. We can, if it's in Pookab, you can hear it in Central Town. So. It doesn't limit the city from actually saying no. You you can't you can't actually have the there than that loud because there has been precedent set uh, in Bury Street, I believe, and of course there has been a, con- uh, a an attempt to, to, to have it at our other where people wanted to come to come test the the the, the sound. Oh, how loud it is and whether it is in accordance with certain protocols and I'm a bit concerned that even though they say yes it's okay for you to have your adhan it will affect the, 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 the loudness of that adhan if this bylaw goes through do you agree with that? No,
4: absolutely, and I, and I agree with you. And I think that uh, for for the MDC to simply be woodwinded by by councillors who say on, on their interpretation um, the the bylaw doesn't affect uh, the in General, um, I say I think that is highly problematic. And and the point that you I think you are making also is that there ought to have been broader consultation, mm-hmm. uh, but perhaps also speaking to legal experts who are uh, knowledgeable about the interpreting of the laws, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and that didn't happen. That appear, apparently did not happen. Because this bylaw seeks to change and give more powers um, and functions to law enforcement officials um, without even consulting the necessary experts and so forth to simply enter into some kind of an agreement with uh, two, two, two councillors in particular. Um, and to say, well, that doesn't affect and So simply to issue a statement—that that for me was quite problematic and disturbing. Yeah, but as uh, I say, I, something I, something needs to be said about that. Yeah, but it's unusual.
2: Uh, I mean, I, and I'm not uh, defending the, the the Muslim Judicial Council in this regard, but it's quite unusual for the Muslim Judicial Council to actually speak to government without actually referring to the the, the, the legal people. So. So maybe that must be taken up with the Muslim Judicial Council again, because I'm but concerned when the the, the city uh, evaluates all the uh, objections and, um, and and people that support this particular piece of uh, bylaw, whatever it may be called, then. You, you, they will say, well, we have consulted with the Muslim Judicial Council and they represent 100 masajids and of that 100 masajids you're averaging about 500 people. So, you know, the overwhelming majority of, of people in the Western Cape they are okay with this thing. So, that's what I'm concerned about and I think maybe that's something you should be able to, to take up with the Muslim Judicial Council and say, look, maybe you must re-look at that particular statement, and see if it if it flies, you know, with with, 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 with a broader consultation process.
4: Yeah, no, I think you you're absolutely correct, you son. And I think what we did uh, we did over the weekend was we did precisely that. Okay, um, we, we reached out to the MJC through various um, uh, uh, individuals who are connected to the MJC, and we said to them, "Listen, man, um you, you, you the, the statement that you've issued um, uh, creates the perception that you're actually supporting the bylaw." Um, which takes us back to the apartheid legislation with regard to search and seizure procedures and so on. And the question is, who is advising the MDC? It's a valid question you have to ask, because how could they simply enter into some kind of an arrangement without consulting um, uh, the communities uh, on such a draconian piece of um, bylaw? If the the issue of consultation was overlooked, then they should withdraw the statement. So so we went to them and we, uh, we, we asked them indirectly, Listen, can you can you consider it and and Alhamdulillah, I must say uh, some some reason prevailed and there was a subsequent statement that was issued, um, which is dated the seventeenth of May, where they clarified uh, uh, in a statement relating to the proposed bylaw that they are not supporting the proposed amended um, bylaw. Uh, they merely asked the question: How are the amendments? Um, affect the call to prayer, the Adhan, rendered from the mosque, uh, five times a day. And they did reiterate that they wanted people to submit their comments and so forth. So I think they might not have retracted that statement, um, which created the perception or the misperception, if I may say, but they did clarify that they did not support it. And I think that is good enough as far as I'm concerned, no. that that some people within the, uh, the leadership in the MJC are actually listening. But I think the mistake. I think you point to the fact that the mistake ought not to have happened in the first place, hmm. if uh, if there was adequate consultation with the appropriate people and the experts and the
2: lawyers and so forth. Yeah, but you know what? I should have been in, in the month of mercy. So maybe you know, we you know, there, there, there's room for error, you know, and of course uh, rectification of error. Are you if,
4: are you saying that people were hungry when they made that decision?
2: Maybe you never know. <laughs> <But> the
4: <laughs> the point I'm saying is, is you know, I'm never that, too that, cr- Is that your, is that your explanation? No, no, no!
2: I'm never too critical when people make decisions, uh, and um, w- if you know in haste, you know. So you must basically understand maybe why the why it was done, and once you understand it, you could. Ma- and if there is still, you know, doubt, then you must basically, you know, look at how you're gonna fix this problem. And I think it's a fixable problem, because no, gotta, the no, legislation no. has not been approved yet.
4: So. You're absolutely correct, and we have to give them the benefit. We don't have the explanation as to how it came about, and certainly the fact that they were able to revisit this and clarify the position does, does mean that people are listening and they are, Taking this quite seriously, so I think your point is
2: quite valid. We don't we don't judge people harshly. I mean, yeah, and then of course this this I just want people to to understand. And I'll just give maybe a simple example. Besides the issue of adhan, I mean, if you look at how people make salah on a, a Juma on a Friday, if I just look at the town area, if I look at. Uh, the the, the Al Azhar Masjid in District 6, and if you look at the, um, the Long Street Masjid in, in the CBD, and um, you know, where, where people, where there's no space and people are forced to salah to outside in, in the street, e- effectively closing the street, you know, um, through salah. So that w- that's a type of activity that ca- will not be, be allowed or tolerated via, I- if this particular bylaw. Is actually approved because then of course the, the the officials as you mentioned earlier, they will simply be able to to invoke their so-called powers is, is that yeah. correct
4: I, mean, I, I think you're correct and I think the example of people making salah for example in, uh, in, in the CBD um, uh, that's often the practice uh, in other mosques or people there's a, a overflow of people that uh, because the mosques are not big enough to accommodate people doing Juma or, or for each salah for example and, and the, you know, the concern that one has is that you have a meeting between the NDC and two particular councillors, politicians. They come to an understanding on their interpretation that this is what the bylaw means. It doesn't affect the azan or that kind of scenario that you're talking about or, or accommodating people on the, the overspilling from the mosque onto the streets. But, but the, the point being that the bylaw still exists and needs to be enforced and regulated. Mm. People who are law enforcement officials won't rely on the interpretation of two councillors who met with the MJC or, or on this particular statement to say it doesn't affect them. They're going to read the letter of the law and they're going to say, well, the law says that you people are not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to make your advance." Yeah, they it's, need to enforce it. Yeah, it's so like it the lockdown. you naive to suggest that, you mm. know, you simply on the say-so on the interpretation of two politicians mm. that, uh, that the law enforcement officials won't necessarily implement the law.
2: Well, the, the example could potentially be, you know, the, the the current lockdown regulations. I mean, lawyers are struggling to keep up with the changes. Every single day there's a change. And, of course, uh, if every time there's a change, there is a... A whole lot of, of interpretations of that change. Now imagine the, the, the law enforcement officials that are not trained in law or in, in, in interpretation of statutes, they will just follow it in accordance with their very, very limited understanding of how the law is supposed to work by them reading it and taking the very literal meaning. Of what they see in front of them. And that, of course, you know, uh, it it, it strengthens the fear that you are currently, uh, you know, um, expressing. So, therefore, you know, uh, aside from the the, the Muslim Judicial Council, maybe to to, to have a, a real look at what they agreed upon, or alternatively coming onto the show and explaining to the public what they actually agreed to and what their understanding was, and uh, because the, 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 the statement put out, the joint statement, does not, is not very, very clear. Um, yeah. And Do you agree with that?
4: No, no, the, the statement is problematic. It had, it had elements of ambiguity, but it also had the, it created the misperception um, that there was MJC support for this particular bylaw. And, and that kind of uh, that kind of uh, uh, you know approach was was quite problematic. And but, but they fixed it now, Ihsan. And I and I think uh, we must accept that, that that the mistake was made and that there was. Uh, no, no. When, a, when you it say they fi- when you say
2: they fixed it, I mean I, I'm yeah. not sure. Was there another statement released?
4: There was a statement subsequently released. So remember, the first statement was released on the 14th of May. Okay. That was a statement that was quite problematic. Right. Uh-huh. And then subsequent to that, over the weekend, there were certain interventions after we saw the initial statement and we raised concerns about the misperception that the NJC is now uh, speaking of behalf of Muslims in support of this particular bylaw. Mm. Then on the 17th, um, the 17th, which was two days ago, the NJC had issued another statement saying uh, clarity, it is titled Clarity Regarding the NJC's Joint Statement with the City of Cape Town. Mm-hmm. And and I must say, you know, it's 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 a, you know it's it's a sufficient clar- clarification as far as I'm concerned. It's a minimalist clarification. I mean, I'm sure they could have said a lot more uh, by distancing themselves, but they did indicate there that they don't support the bylaw. It must not be construed as such, and I think it should be accepted as as a rectification. Of, um, of, of the first statement. Yeah, I think um, it will be very useful
2: then to to have the MJC on, on on voice of the Cape, just giving us uh, an account of an it. And and, an uh, and I think that will suffice if uh, if at the end of it, you know, as long as 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 the 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 the, um, the intention uh, to actually challenge certain aspect, even the, the, the whole um, bylaw, you know, if if it prejudices anybody, especially the poor of this and the homeless. Because I think that by, by supporting a bylaw that prejudices the poor and the homeless, uh, that flies in the face of everything that we are about as a community.
4: Absolutely, absolutely. And yeah. I think I think you know you know in the submission that I've made also is that besides focusing on the homeless and the impact of this bylaw on the homeless. What, what we've also considered is the relationship that exists between the city that the the, the, the city of Cape Town has in regulating public spaces uh, and its decision to use criminal investigative techniques of search and seizure um, so that relationship needed to be needed to be unpacked and I think that um, if organizations like the NGc had been had spoken to lawyers they would have been made aware that there are um, and there are these inconsistencies um, and these relationships that exist, but you know so so, so clearly there the, are the a number of pitfalls and and, and, and mine, you know uh, sort of like um, uh, problematic areas in the draft law. it's not just about the Adhan, and I think that's the point that I want to bring across
3: mm-hmm.
4: uh, and to take a narrow view to say we're only concerned with the Adhan, uh, when they know that they represent, um, you know, um, people in the poor communities on the Cape Flats and so forth who are going to be impacted, or was a very perhaps a, a short-sighted uh, view, and and I think your invitation to the industry to come on 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 air and to explain is a is a, is a good one. I hope that they take up that uh, that opportunity I should have, uh, going forward.
2: Ashraf, you're talking about uh, you know just representing the, the, the poor on on the Cape Flats and. Um, uh, You'll be surprised to know that in the CBD area, like, you know, just in the District 6, Woodstock, Salt River area, there is more than 200 Muslims that are actually sleeping on the street that's actually homeless. I mean, so it will affect all these people. Whether we like it or not, you know, these uh, bylaws, I think we should use that as a starting point. It's not only affecting the, the poor who's living in homes, but it's also affecting the homeless who's actually also Muslim. So.
4: I'm going to share something quite shocking with you now. I mean, just just for the city of Cape Town, I mean, I'm speaking to um, people uh, like uh, organizations like u that work with homeless um, and so forth. On the statistics that they've provided, they're saying that there are approximately 2,500 shelter beds within the city. In other words, the Haven Night Shelter and, and others yeah. other, uh, other institutions are able to take take in 2,500 people. But at any given moment, there are about 6,000 uh, homeless street people in the city, mm. which means that there's a shortage. It means that the, the people don't have a choice. There will always be people on the street for as long as there are not insufficient beds. And when you talk about 200 Muslim people in that in that area that you're talking about Woodstock and so on, I, I would actually uh, venture to say, you know, that it's the numbers are much higher if you look across the Cape Flats, uh, Ekzan. Mm. Uh, but those those um, those statistics are actually quite quite shocking. But the point I want to also make is that criminalizing homeless, homelessness uh, through bylaws such as this, where people, they lack money and employment, and, and that is the reason for being on the street. Giving someone a criminal record makes it even harder for them to get a job.
2: Yeah, they'll if become trauma, unemployable. If to,
4: yeah. Exactly. If trauma and abuse is the reason why people are on the street, the anxiety... And trauma faced of receiving a fine and then being taken to court makes it even harder to work with someone rehabilitatively. So you can't rehabilitate people like that. Mm. Fining people who have no job, who have no money, and no means to pay is completely counterintuitive. And so the underlying premise of this bylaw is quite problematic because of the punishment that it imposes.
2: No, okay, excellent. Thank you, Shukran, very much, Ashraf, for your for the insight into this bylaw. I think uh, this is still a debate that must be carried through, you know, uh, on many forums. And, of course, on uh, the radio station, we we'll obviously keep a very, very close eye on this uh, bylaw. And, uh, yeah, Shukran for, for, for Shuk- honoring us with uh, with your presence tonight on air.
4: Shuk- Shukran to you and Ramadan and uh, Eid Mubarak to all the listeners and uh, may Allah uh, guide and protect us for the remaining days of uh, of Ramadan and may we benefit from uh, Laylatul Qadr, inshallah and may Allah accept all our duas, inshallah Shukran to you for hosting me. As-salamu
1: Alaikum salam My radio station, your radio station, our radio station, the voice of the Cape. The Legal Hour with Ihsan Higgins.
2: And we are back with the Legal Hour and uh, last segment, last few minutes of this program. uh, And uh, we've got online with us, um, none other than uh, old regulars, uh, Faisal Bardin. Assalamu alaikum, Faisal. Alaikum salam, uh,
1: Aiksaan, all
2: of the OC listeners. Uh, Shukran, Faisal. And then uh, we've got also Nazir Park. Assalamu alaikum, Nazir. Wa alaikum salam, VOC listeners, and to Faisal as well. Okay, so, you it's, so it's nice to speak to both of you from different um, magisterial districts. Nazir, of course, being there in the northern suburbs and Faisal being in the southern suburbs. And we're speaking to him from town. So, huh. uh, yeah. So, gentlemen, we are now on day 50-something of the <laughs> of the lockdown. Are uh, you uh,
5: still
2: counting? You I'm still counting every single day here. And uh, I was actually like almost celebrating on the, on the 50th day. <laughs> and I couldn't believe that, you know, we started it. And it almost feels like it was the other day. It went very, very quick. So, um, but in any case, Faisal, your current um, views on what's happening at the uh, moment? Um, is there any new, uh, new, uh, new regulations, uh, new law? I just want to say, Niksan, you
5: had uh, two good segments before us. Very interesting, very informative. And unfortunately, we must make me apologise to the listeners now before end because you know the regulations is always a boring,
2: <laughs>
5: a <laughs> boring segment. So, but you know we need to deal deal with it and clarify. Uh, but Alhamdulillah, that was two good segments you had before this.
2: Shukran, and for that.
5: Yeah. So, so um, with the with the new regulations, uh, what I wanted to just bring to the attention of the listeners is the uh, with regard to the movement of people in event of them having to relocate to new premises, whether it's residential or business. So the first one that came out was on the 7th of May, right, and that had a limited time period until the 7th of June, whereby if you were moving house or moving business, you could move during that period until the 7th of June. And then obviously there was consultation with government, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And they obviously thought, hold oh, that, you know, it's not going to work until the 7th of June. We need to open this up. And then they came out with a new regulation, which was then published on the 14th of May, 2020. Mm-hmm. So what it basically means is that if you need to move house because your lease ended, you need to then vacate and move to a new premises or you bought a premises or a property, and the transfer took place, and you now need to move into your new property that you purchased. Um, Those regulations give you the right to move yourself and your furniture, pictures, etc. Not pictures, sorry, it's furniture, mm-hmm. and your goods with you. Um, so long that you have a valid permit with you.
2: And so, is this across um, across uh, provinces or is it just within the province? This
5: is across provinces also. So if you're relocating to another prom- province and you bought or you're going to lease uh, in that premises uh, on that side, then you can relocate. Uh, but you need to go to your local police station. And then when you go to your local police station, and I just want to mention and talk about this form that you need to get the police to, to sign and stamp, which is called Form 1 under Direction 3B. Mm-hmm. So that is the permit that we're talking about. So your details will be filled in in this permit, where you um, you know, where you're currently are residing and where you're going to be moving to and also who's helping you to move, whether it's a family friend or whether it is a, a removal service. That details all go into there and also, you need to have your documentation, which is either your lease agreement or, they say, your title deed. Mm-hmm. And let me just warn the listeners that you know you might not have your title deed because the deeds office was closed. So that title deed might still be lying at the deed's office, so you might not have that. Document. But Faisal, but
2: even during normal time, if it wasn't locked down, it doesn't happen immediately. It, it takes a couple of it, months before the, your title it, deed gets to there you. There
5: we go, and that's why I'm alerting the listeners. It will take you between three and six weeks to get mm. that title deed. So what you do in, in in the alternative is that you would get your conveyancer to issue you a conveyancing certificate. And that certificate gets signed and stamped by the conveying, sir who confirms that the transit took place in such and such a date, and this is the new owner of the property. Mm. Uh, you know, if if they have captured the, the deed on the microfilm in a deed office, they could then also, you could maybe print a copy of it. Not have the original, you might have a copy printed, uh, but that depends on whether the deeds office has uploaded that uh, microphone copy onto a system in order for you to get a copy of it. Okay. So, if there would be a conveyancing certificate.
2: Faisal, I want to get to Nazir quickly. Nazir, what happens now? I mean, and and I'm asking you to look into a crystal ball now. Because Hmm. if Cape Taosas, rather, let's say the Western Cape stays under level 4 and let's say if Free State moves to level 3, then and you have to move house to free state. Surely it doesn't make sense for for somebody coming out of a level four province to move to a level three province. What is your thoughts on that?
1: Hey, Sean, you know the the, the well, uh, we we're speculating that it was remain minor level four, but I I support you there. I think theory suggests that, but. Ultimately, in the end of the day, in the event that we are going to be moving interprovincially and from a level four province to a level three province, uh, I, I don't think there's much logic that dictates that it should happen. But as Faisal said, now you've got all of these uh, justice regulations that does allow for this interprovincial travels under certain circumstances. So irrespective, in my mind, whether it's going to be a level four province or a level three province, I think it will still be permissible under those strict uh, terms and conditions.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> And okay, Nazir, just your, your favorite topic, the, the cigarette topic. Um, <laughs> and uh, myself and Faisal, we've never smoked, so for us it's not appropriate even to speak about cigarettes. So, <laughs> so uh, But just tell me quickly, some listener phone, I mean, shame, people are like really wanting to smoke. Uh, no. Imagine you, I mean, I, I know of a whole lot of people, you know, immediately after they break their fast, they run outside and they go light up a cigarette. Now imagine you break your fast you list for that cigarette all day and then you realize after you've broken your fast that you don't have cigarettes.
1: <laughs> that's, that's unfortunately the reality with, uh, with many <laughs> with many people here. Unfortunately with regard to the cigarette scenario there doesn't seem to be much clarification from uh, either the tobacco manufacturers or from the government at this point in time. The, the, the ban very much remains intact uh, and unfortunately, I mean, I see it happening on on, on in practice that uh, the illicit cigarette trade has picked up tenfold, and unfortunately, the the pricing is ridiculous. It's absolutely. Uh, more than a thousand percent increase in terms of the value of, of, of a
2: packet of products. Nazir, so. I had an interesting encounter the other day. Uh, somebody, one of the fishmongers came outside. I could hear the warn and, of course, I went out to go check what fish this person has. And then he tells me, but, it it like, you know, like, <laughs> and then, <laughs> then for interest, I asked him, and then he told me, um, it was 170 rand, a packet of 10. Wow. 170 rand for a packet of 10. And to fact, and, and, and what is it, Stuyvesant of Rothmans? And then he gave me some strange name, you know, like uh, uh-huh. I've never heard of Kingston or something like that. And <laughs> I thought to myself, that same cigarette probably cost 20 rand in normal times. That's and correct. he wanted 170 rand. So the black market is obviously booming right now.
1: It is, Sean, and 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 that's the difficulty. I think that the the financial brains of of the country, especially the, in the ministerial sections, are are sweating about because they're losing out on a lot of syntax on on uh, on the cigarette trade. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I I I, might, I stand to be corrected. I know that there was a tentative date for the twenty sixth of May for the uh, application brought by the cigarette manufacturers to to finalise that uh, particular aspect for the lifting of the ban. Albeit I'm not sure whether that date is secured or whether they've just uh, amended their timelines for the hearing of the matter. But Mm -hmm. the, the application hasn't been abandoned at this point in time. It's still very much intact.
2: Yeah. Okay, Faisal, just your final comment. Uh, I think uh, we've, we've now exhausted uh, our time. Yeah, I just wanted to
5: mention time. also, just to inform the listeners about the Deeds Office. You know, the Deeds Office opened on the 13th of May, 2020. However, today we got a notice that the there has been a suspension with regard to lodging new deeds in the Deeds Office as from tomorrow onwards. Mm. So it feels that we're going back to square one as far as moving forward. Mm -hmm. And hopefully this suspension is going to be lifted soon. Uh, I believe it's got to do with the issue of... um you know, mm-hmm. having proper PPE and, reg- and sanitization in, uh, of the They
2: probably didn't uh, comply with safety regulations Could be, mm. that's, that's Sounds what like I'm reading between mm. the lines, yeah But
5: then the master's office is open also however, uh, uh, you know, skeleton staff type of thing, uh, you can't yeah. do consultations or anything, you have to do everything through Uh, letters
2: etc you know so so that's what's happening on that too okay shukran that has to do with the 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 deeds office and the master's office so for those people that was worried about the estates and the wills and so of course uh, you know there's some movement at the master's office at this point in time nazir your final comment
1: Sean, just to touch on what Faisal was speaking about, I just want to advise the listeners that uh, a lot of people have been asking me what the movement uh, amendments to the regulations have uh, impacted the eviction orders that maybe have been obtained prior to lockdown at this moment in time. The eviction orders and the enforcement of the eviction orders remain suspended. So unfortunately, until such time that the um, powers that be changes that, eviction orders cannot be impact, uh, enforced at Nazir, you say
2: unfortunately, unfortunately for landlords, but fortunately for those people that don't have anywhere to go.
1: No, it's a balanced uh, thing at the moment. They of course. Uh, <laughs> mm.
2: Okay, but guys, shukran very much, uh, Faisal, Bardin and uh, Nazir Parker, for gracing us with your presence at this hour um, and giving us very, very valuable information. Mm. So Thank you. shukran yeah. very much and I uh, want to greet both of you Assalamu alaikum So for the listeners uh, yeah, shukran very much uh, for uh, giving us an opportunity to serve this wonderful community um, I want to say to everybody please be safe uh, Please look after your your loved ones. Um, if you need to go out for urgent things, otherwise stay at home. Try to avoid um, the uh, the this COVID um, disease. I've per, I've got personal friends that actually uh, were declared positive. Um, I'm shocked. I'm still in shock actually that you know that I was you know like speaking to this person on that particular day, and the evening I get an SMS to say that he has been um, he, he's positive. For COVID, so it's real out there. It's not something that you know that uh, the, uh, it's not the Illuminati or the uh, people that is uh, the strange forces that's putting it out there. It's it's real. So uh, please, people, look after yourselves. I want to say to everybody, you know, have a wonderful Eid. Um, I will obviously only be speaking to you after Eid. So yeah, have a safe and wonderful Eid, and uh, yeah, be blessed.